Hi everybody, I'm Seth Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Today's guest is Michelle Bowden. When it comes to speaking with confidence, Michelle is a master. She's an authority on persuasive presentation skills with over 23 years of experience. She's a multi-million dollar pitch coach and her client list reads like a who's who of international business. Michelle is the creator of the Persuasion Smart Profile, a world-first psychological assessment tool that reports on your persuasive strengths and weaknesses. She joins me today to share some of the secrets to persuasive presentations. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. What a pleasure to talk with you, Cess. Oh, excellent. Uh, Now, I am wondering... Did you have the gift of the gab? Were you the kid that, you know, was at school excelling in the debating team, was in the playground, regaling everyone with fantastic tales and extraordinary things? You know, I was. (laughs) (laughs) I was very good at public speaking in school and I have always been persuasive. It comes naturally to me. Well, that's great for you. Not all of us have that gift. <laughs> how did you teach it to everyone? <laughs> how how did you come to your passion then for communicating and for persuading people? Well, thanks for asking. You know, I think I've have always been persuasive in my life. It does come naturally to me. And I was thinking about this recently when I was 22 in my first corporate job with Lendlease out of university. I'd been in the company about three months and I looked around and thought there's no learning and development function in this business and we should have one. So at the age of 22, I put a proposal together for the bosses at Lendlease and I said to them, we need a training department, so please can you set it up? And I'm going to need a manager because I don't know how to do any of this. And while we're at it, how about you pay for me to go and study adult education at university as a postgraduate degree, which I then later rolled into a master's. And after about a week of considering my proposal, they accepted it. (laughs) They made a training department. They made me the trainer. They found me a boss. And off I went to university to study the art and science of adult learning. So I think from that early stage in my career, I was always pretty good at working out what do I want in life right now and what would be the best steps to take to get there. I've also been quite good when things were starting to feel a bit stale at recognising that quite quickly and thinking, okay, what other opportunities could I go and seek out for myself? And it's really interesting. I just have always studied the art of persuasion and I've made it my passion and my career and I spend all day and all night thinking about it pretty much. So, (laughs) um, you know, I think I was always meant to be an an expert in persuasive presenting in business and I love what I do, which is amazing, right? Not very many people can say that and I really love my work. (laughs) So your favourite book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, (laughs) Dale Carnegie? (laughs) Book, right? A very important book. And really, I feel like my new book, How to Persuade, is like the next iteration of that. You think about all those cool books that you've read as an entrepreneur, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, 
what else? Getting to Yes, which was a bestseller in 2021. This book really takes the latest research and development in the area of persuasion and says, right, what do human beings need to do now, now that we know what we know, to be as persuasive as possible in their lives, at home and at work? And what is that? What is the secret? Ah, That's an important question, right? (laughs) So thank you for asking it. (laughs) in, In... About two years ago, after about 20 years of research, I launched a psychometric assessment tool, which is a bit like Myers-Briggs or DISC or one of those things that some of your listeners would have completed in their careers. And my psych assessment is called the Persuasion Smart Profile. The Persuasion Smart Profile assesses your strengths and weaknesses when it comes to persuading other people at work. And what we know is that there are four main approaches or types to persuading others and most humans are strong in two of the approaches and weaker in the other two. Now why would you even care to know this about yourself? Well when the communication scenario requires what is currently your strength then says you're just going to talk, you're, the person you're trying to persuade is going to listen, you might not even feel like you're in a persuasive moment at the time You'll go back to whatever you were doing and the person has said yes to you and it doesn't even feel like a persuasive moment. It was just an easy conversation in your life. It probably passed you by. When the communication scenario requires what is currently your weakness, however, you don't have the tools in your toolkit, the communication skills to be able to say it in the way that that stakeholder or that prospect needs to hear it and experience it. So it doesn't matter how hard you try, you just can't make them listen and agree. And I'm sure you've had that experience, have you, where you've had a really good idea and you know it's a good idea and even other people tell you it's a good idea, but the person you're trying to persuade simply cannot hear you when you're giving them the benefits of it. Have you ever had that happen? Michelle, I am exceptionally persuasive and all my ideas go extremely well. Feeling that you're hitting your head against the wall is a very frustrating feeling. It's like, what am I doing wrong here? What's wrong with this person? So the psychometric assessment tool just looks at the Persuasion Smart Profile. It looks at where are you strong and where are you weak? And it gives you an 11-page report that describes for you where you're strong and where you're weak. My new book, How to Persuade, takes it to that next step. And what we've worked out is that there are, in fact, 10 actions or behaviours that each of the four types do. And if you can get good in all 40 of them, then you will be consistently persuasive all of the time. Now, 40 actions sounds like it's all too hard, doesn't it? It sounds like a lot of homework. (laughs) A lot of homework, a lot of of hard work. So the good news is that most of us are strong already in two of the types and then weaker in the other two. And what are the types, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so in order to make it a bit easier to understand than some of those existing processes that are around like introvert, extrovert, thinker, feeler, you know, all that stuff. We decided that we would allocate a bird to each of the four approaches. So we have the wise owl. Owls are driven to persuade by establishing message credibility. Then we have the commanding eagle. Eagles are driven to persuade by conveying personal authority. Then there's the friendly budgie. They're driven to persuade by establishing goodwill. 
And then there's the captivating peacock. And the captivating peacock is driven to persuade by sweeping you up, arousing enthusiasm and passion for the matter. And flattery, perhaps. Flattery (laughs) is definitely something a peacock is very good at. So the peacock and the eagle are what we call charismatic types. Yeah. Um, they are the they are the the peacock and the excuse me the peacock and the budgie are what we call charismatic types. So they're people people. They're really good at connecting with you, impressing you, having you like them. Whereas the owl and the eagle are what we call credibility types. The owl is really interested in message credibility. So the facts and the and the research and the external proof has to be there in order for them to be persuaded by you. Whereas eagles are more interested in personal credibility and authority. You've got the runs on the board. You've done this before. You can be trusted as the trusted authority in this matter. So, um, yeah, they're the four types, the wise owl, the commanding eagle, the friendly budgie and the captivating peacock. So when you're using one of those techniques, do you also have to realise who it is you're talking to? Like know your audience. I'm talking to a peacock here, so this is how I'll talk to a peacock. Exactly. So there's there's a few steps to becoming persuasion smart. Step one is first know yourself. Where are you strong and where are you weak? Step two is to be able to elicit it in your stakeholder because you're not trying to persuade yourself. You're already convinced about the matter. You're trying to persuade them. So, yes, most definitely you're correct that it's all about working out what they are and that's why we came up with these bird names because if you make it too complicated and psychological profiling then most people switch off and can't be bothered with that whereas these birds are accessible and they're easier the qualities of the birds are easier to relate to because we all know what an owl is and an eagle is and a budgie is and a peacock is Um, step three is to then build your persuasive muscle so wherever you're strong and wherever you're weak you maybe even can get stronger where you're strong and you most definitely have to get stronger where you're weak. This is not one of those profiling tools where you get told, well, you're an introvert or an extrovert, so good on you, go forth and love yourself. This is one that's, <laughs> you know, you're not strong here. So if you don't get strong here, you're going to be consistently frustrated because you can't be persuasive all the time no matter the scenario. So the idea of this is, you, you do need to try and develop your capability across all four approaches if you want to be consistently persuasive. And then, yes, step four, flex your style. Flex and be whatever that stakeholder needs you to be within, you know, within your personality and your authentic mm. self. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Don't start suddenly start being super flamboyant if you're not. That's that right. won't come off as authentic That's at it. all. It's going to be weird and you'll turn people off. So we've all got these mannerisms or behaviours in our personalities that repel our stakeholder. And that's one of the reasons why even when it's a really good idea, sometimes people still say no. It's because there's something about you that's turned them off. So oh, that sounds off. super harsh. <laughs> oh, you've repelled your stakeholder. Repelled <laughs> your stakeholder. Serious language, right? But it is serious. You know, I work with teams that are doing $700 million deals and you can't afford for one of the 25 people in a pitch team to repel the stakeholder. Because that one person who maybe is turning the buyer off might be responsible for the whole company losing the deal. So that's why a pitch team would come to work with someone like me. It's to make sure that in a safe and 
you know, in a safe and nurturing environment, people are given that kind of, you know, how often, Sass, in life does someone actually give you that kind of really full-on feedback that you're doing something that really isn't helping you to be a persuasive human in the world? And it's not very often. Most people just wouldn't be rude enough. And so you go through life doing these weird things that turn people off and you don't even know you're doing it. In my experience for the last 23 years of running my business, they're mostly small things. And if you knew you were doing it, you'd stop. And the minute you stopped, you'd be instantly more persuasive. So, yes, absolutely. It is strong words, but it's important. The sort of people I'm working with, this is a make or break. This is whether you get promoted. This is whether everyone gets to keep their jobs. This is is serious stuff. Are there some typical, I don't know, tics or twitches that people have that might make them less persuasive? Yeah, I think uh, there's a big focus on storytelling at the moment in the corporate world. And I think sometimes people just forget that it's not about you and your story. It's more about what the audience needs to hear. And talking too much about yourself and your own experiences and your own stories can be terribly boring to a stakeholder. It's really all about making it about them. What is their pain? What is their challenge? What is their frustration? And how does the thing you're pitching solve that problem? So if you can be fully in your audience's shoes and your stakeholder's shoes, that's going to make you way more persuasive. Um, what else is annoying that people do? I think sometimes people uh, just don't don't read the room and their emotional objective isn't very clear. So the stakeholder doesn't know, are they meant to be afraid? Are they meant to be relieved? Are they meant to be excited? Are they meant to be compelled to take action? The the person who's pitching or persuading just hasn't put the effort to thinking, what's the right emotion that I want the person to be feeling in this moment? And make sure you feel it too. You know, my, my oldest daughter is 23. Her name's Holly. And she says to me, mum, moods are contagious, mum. Is yours worth catching? <laughs> You know, so it's a bit about that. Sometimes people don't pitch their idea as in the right with the right emotional focus for the for the client or the stakeholder. Yeah, you need to you do need to read the room and know your audience. So I guess part of that is also research. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this is where persuasion and presenting kind of overlaps, right? So there's three strategic phases to a persuasive presentation in business and the phases are analysis, which is what you've just said, then design, which is where you put the message together, and then delivery. Now, the analysis part is the bit that's a bit boring for most people and that's the bit that most people don't do. One of the things I do in my business is I run a two-day persuasive presentation skills masterclass and we spend from the beginning of the course until morning tea focusing on the analysis The model that you use to work out what your stakeholder is looking for only takes 20 minutes to apply, and yet most people can't be bothered to do it. But if you did, amazing. You're going to be so clear what you're trying to achieve, so clear what they need from you, so everything you say will be driving toward the outcome you're trying to achieve. It's very exciting. Yes to analysis. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes to analysis. Otherwise, people are just going to think you're unprepared, aren't they? Well, you know, I think your body language gives you away. If you're trying to sell something you don't believe in, 
if you're not quite sure really what the issues are and you're not brave enough to ask them so that you're updated on what the client or the prospect's looking for, then whatever nonsense that's coming out of your mouth, you'll know it's nonsense and your body language will give you away. You know, you'll do some weird thing with your hands or your face will have a funny expression. Your smile won't come out authentically. There'll just be some weirdness about you and it's just that feeling. People say it's called an unconscious response. People go, um, I just didn't really want to buy from that person, but I can't tell you why. <laughs> it was just a feeling I got. Well, it's because it was all a nonsense and the body gave it away. <laughs> and Peacock's really good at making sure that their body language is congruent with their message. Yeah, that is important, isn't it? Because if your voice is saying one thing and your body's saying another, well, <laughs> that's not great, is it? No one's going to buy from you. Not at all. And you know the other thing, of course, which we really have to talk about is slides. <laughs> oh, my God. Death by PowerPoint. Death by PowerPoint. So, you know, someone who's unprepared uses their slides to cheat from. They're what I call first position. So they're in their own shoes, they care about themselves, and they're cheating off their slides because they haven't put in the effort to work out what to say next. Someone who's properly audience-focused, which is second position, has thought through what this person or stakeholders need from them. They've crafted their message masterfully. They've thought through all the things that owls, eagles, budgies and peacocks need from you. And then they've created their slides accordingly to make sure that they just reinforce the key messages. And then there's no way in a million years that anyone could ever think of you as unprepared. They'll, you'll get brand words like respectful, helpful, collaborative, supportive, great words for someone who's trying to persuade. Yeah, because nobody wants to go to a presentation and sit through someone basically reading their slides verbatim. Definitely not. <laughs> it's the yeah. most tedious thing ever. That Isn't would be my one, my one thing I would just always say to someone if they were doing a presentation is please, please, please don't do that. Like cut down your slides, yeah. make them have some kind of purpose or message to them and know what you you want to say that's it well whether you're persuading or presenting or presenting persuasively the slides are not the presentation the slides are a visual aid that you use to reinforce your key messages and I think the mistake that people have made over the last probably five or so years is senior bosses in companies have said things like you need to cut back your slides. It's not about having less slides. It's about having the right slides that reinforce your messages. So the best question that you can ask yourself every time you create slides for every single slide in the deck is, is this the best way to visually reinforce this point? And if the busy graph with 100 things on it and hundreds of colours and it's all animated and whizzing around is not it, well, then be tough on yourself and make the decision to either start again or cut it right back. And so that what that means is actually you probably end up with more slides because you're animating them or building them in order to bring your stakeholder or your prospect along the journey with you. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. If that makes sense. Yeah, so, for example, I've got a keynote speech on persuasion and I think I've got 75 slides in 45 minutes, which most people would say, oh, my God, that's dreadful. What are you doing? And, uh, you know, I'm one of the highest credentialed speakers in the world. <laughs> but my slides are pictures and there's few words on them. And my my slides 
evoke the emotional response that I want to create in the audience when I say that point as the persuader, as the speaker. So, yeah, I think the presentation is not the slides. The presentation is you, the human being, connecting with the other human beings and arousing some enthusiasm in them so that they are compelled to take the action you require. And if slides do that, great, use slides. If not, a whiteboard, a flip chart, a handout, a database, whatever you've got to make sure that you reinforce your points. Mm. And you touched on it briefly earlier, but body language. I Mm. mean, how important is it to get your body language right from the get-go to you know command the stage if you're going in and make sure that people are able to focus on you because I guess there's so many people have so many little fidgety things that they do that they may not be aware of or like the micro expressions you were talking about I think isn't it like someone will just make an opinion of you in that that first 20 seconds just from that expression on your face that you might not even realise you're carrying. That's it. Or you gesture the wrong way. Yeah. What the audience's left is their past. The audience's right is their future. Sometimes, like Scott Morrison the other day just before the election said something like, this is the biggest challenge for Australia, and he used the wrong hand when he said it. Now, people don't say, I'm not voting for Scott Morrison because he gestured with the wrong hand, (laughs) right? (laughs) But they do say... There's just one more thing about Scott Morrison that I've observed in that interview and I can't quite put my finger on what it is. They don't know it was the gesture. It's an unconscious response. But they'll go, I just don't trust that guy. And then what do you know? Albanese gets in. So um, I, I do think you're right that body language is incredibly important and it's even important in online meetings. The most important thing for body language in an online meeting is that you're constantly looking into the camera, which is incredibly painful as a speaker to have to do. You're looking right into the lights that are that are brightening your face up. You you can't see the faces of the people on the Zoom or the whatever platform, the Teams platform that you're using, but the minute you don't look into the camera, the minute you look down into the faces, all they see is the top of your head and that's just weird. You can't possibly create rapport with an audience if they don't think you were looking at them. They have to perceive that you were looking at them even if you weren't. So how about that for an important body language moment that we're all having to deal with since covid right into the camera for the entire meeting. There's no moment where you're allowed to look down at notes, look away, look anywhere. You've just got to be in that camera for the whole meeting. It's, it's hard and it's exhausting and that's why Zoom fatigue is a thing. But it's incredibly important if you're trying to persuade that people think you're looking at them. What about I'm a startup and I've got a 10-minute pitch, like I've gone in one of those competitions and I've got probably not even that. I might have been given three minutes to make my pitch in this pitching comp what what are your suggestions for how they get their idea across in that short amount of time what an exciting question right I love working with people that are doing this and they all these cool startup hubs that have popped up around the place give so many entrepreneurs an opportunity to do this it's just such a great thing to think about so this is what I'd say three phases to a persuasive presentation or pitch analysis then design then delivery so analysis is where you work out what am I trying to achieve what does my stakeholder need from me and you really need to get into the audience's shoes What do they need in order to say yes to this idea? 
Then you create the presentation. Now, there's 16 hours of a masterclass that I would need to take you through to explain how to create a really good message. But there are essentially two models that you use to craft a really good pitch. And this can be delivered then in about five minutes as the minimum amount of time. So you can use all of this to do a five-minute speech. There's a model that perhaps listeners might like to go and research called Format with the number four and mat, and it's international best practice for crafting a pitch. So that's a really important model to understand. Essentially, you're answering four questions. They are why, then what, then how, then what if. And you need to answer the questions in that order. Now, Format was invented back in the 1960s. It's best practice. But in 2006, it started getting very obvious to me that, in fact, whilst format is amazing, sometimes it's difficult as an entrepreneur in a pitch competition like this to work out what goes where in the order of the things you want to say. So which of the things you want to address go in the why, which go in the what, what goes in the how, and what goes in the what if. So back in 2006, I created my own model. And it's called the Persuasion Blueprint. And the Persuasion Blueprint includes 13 linguistic patterns. A linguistic pattern is just the way you combine your words in your sentences. And there are 13 of them. And they sit over the top of the format model to help you know exactly what to say so that you're using the format model, which is best practice, better. And this, of course, is how I've you know, made a career, is teaching people this persuasion blueprint. So I think if you're serious about winning a pitch, it's very important to take the way you're going to deliver your message seriously. Master the craft, learn what you need to learn to be as amazing as possible at structuring that message. Wise owls need you to craft your message logically. They are They, they will switch off if there's not a logical, rational order to the content that you are covering. So that's why format and the persuasion blueprint are so important. And then the phase three is the delivery phase. And, of course, there's, you know, I I teach eight hours of body language (laughs) when I teach this in a masterclass. There's so many things that you can learn, like what I said about left is their past, right is their future, um, things like that that are just so important, how to stand, how to breathe, how to gesture, how to interact with the slides and the audience, how to get the audience talking. I think it's really important to get interaction in a presentation and that's all part of the delivery that you're doing, which is phase three of a great pitch. So think about perhaps what questions could you ask the audience or how could you get them to participate Can you pass a sample of your product around? Can you get them, if it's something you can eat, can they eat it? (laughs) You know, if it's something that they need to smell, can they smell it? What can you do to get people to engage their senses? So a peacock, a captivating peacock is really good at stimulating the senses of their audience. So they would make sure that there was interaction and movement and the visual auditory kinesthetic was really stimulated so the person just can't say no. You're trying to make yourself undeniable. So that's what I'd be saying. I know I rushed through that quite quite a lot there, Sess, but that's that in a nutshell, that is the process for successful pitching. And what if I'm I have a great pitch, I've worked on all the areas that mm. that you've just spoken about, but mm. I have one of those terrible, monotonous, droney voices that people just switch off. Yeah, that's what can I do? That I think your voice is most definitely linked 
to your emotional objective. Back to what my Holly says to me about your mood is contagious, mum. So a good presenter, a good persuader, a powerful persuader takes their audience on an emotional journey. If I had, a, if to your question, if I had a pitch that I was pretty happy with and I think it's doing what it's supposed to do, then what I would probably do on the side of my script is I'd write the emotions at the various stages of the pitch that I wanted the audience to feel in that moment. So I want them to start off being worried that they don't have this product and they need it or otherwise they might fail. Then I want them to feel hopeful that there might be a solution. Then I want them to feel optimistic that there is a solution and then excited because now I know what it is and then compelled to take the action that I require and buy it right now. So there's an emotional journey, if you can see what I mean, that you're taking them through the various moments of this this pitch and if you don't feel that emotion in that moment, then there's no way they're going to feel it and your voice will, won't be persuasive. If you know that you're trying to make someone really excited about this thing and you feel excited, then there's no way your voice can be boring. Your voice will be excited. It's, it's human nature. And in particular, if you're looking at your stakeholder or in a, an online presentation, if you're looking into the camera and imagining their face as if you're really talking to them, then that beautiful whites of the eyes is what causes that human connection. And when you feel an emotion and, you, and you're conveying it to another human through the whites of the eyes, through the eyeballs, then your voice is just going to do what it needs to do. You don't need to, I don't think you need to worry about having a boring voice. No one has a naturally boring voice. It's just that you haven't tapped into your emotional objective. So at the moment, you know, we laugh as public speakers. We often laugh and say, you know, the audience was a bit bit tired today and it would have been good. When they tell you at the end of a keynote that you thought was a bit flat, that you were the best speaker they'd ever seen, we, we often laugh to ourselves and say it would have been good if they told their faces. <laughs> so it's a bit like that. You've got to tell your face. <laughs> Be excited. And you know one of the coolest and simplest tricks that you can do to authentically feel the emotion is to use the word of that emotion in the actual pitch. So if, if for example, I could say to you, Sess, I'm really worried for you that you haven't got XYZ product. And the reason I'm worried for you is blah, blah, and I'd put them in their pain. And then I might say, now, what's exciting here so you see what I'm really optimistic yeah. for you because this is what and so now I'm sure you feel compelled <laughs> you know, you've got to use the words in don't you action. try and trick me Michelle <laughs> well and you know that's a really you know I'm glad you said that because that's just such an important thing to for us to all consider when we're persuading and you can't have a, a proper conversation about persuasion without the word manipulation being introduced. You cannot simultaneously be assertive and manipulative at, you, you, at I was going to say at the same time, but that's a tautology. So you, you, you can't be, so um, there are five main ways that we go about influencing someone. Two of the, one way is the passive way. That's modelling and guiding. Another way is the aggressive way. That's forcing and directing. 
And so that's like a boss that says, I want you to do it this way and I don't want you to talk to me about it, just do it the way I'm saying. It's my way or the highway. That's forcing and directing. And then the middle approach is the assertive approach and that's persuasion. If you're manipulating someone, you're in first position, so you're in your own shoes and you only care about yourself and you're probably using either a passive or an aggressive approach to influence. If you were being true, truly persuasive in the moment, then there's no way that you can be simultaneously persuasive and manipulative. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it does actually. Yeah. yeah. So it's about your intent. If your intent is to trick someone, to coerce someone into doing something that at the end of the day they're not going to feel good about and neither are you, you're going to lie in your bed at the end of the day going, oh, I feel a bit yucky for that behaviour that I demonstrated with my colleague or my client today, my family member, then that if you've got that yucky feeling, you can be fairly sure you weren't persuading. That That's some form of manipulation. You're either modelling and guiding or forcing and directing which are passive or aggressive approaches to influence. Yeah, neither of which we, we want here today. <laughs> no, <laughs> or, or ever really. It's just such an, isn't it? No human being feels truly good from making someone else feel terrible. No. Well, you so hope not. That's why, yeah, that's why I'm so, so passionate about persuasion because it is the assertive approach where you care about achieving your needs but in a way that is meaningful to them. There's freedom in the decision-making process for your stakeholder. That's really, really important. No buyer's remorse here. Yes. <laughs> and finally, uh, your new book, Where and When Can People Get It? It's so exciting, isn't it, Sess? This is my second book. My first book, How to, How to Present, was a, is a bestseller. Uh, this new book is How to Persuade. It's the second book in the series. It's available for pre-order now. Perhaps we could put a link in your show notes if that works for yes. you uh, because there's a special link that you can click to pre-order this book. It will be available in all good bookstores in August. <laughs> Excellent. And I look forward to, to reading a copy very, very soon and then going out into the world persuading willy-nilly. That's it. So it explains, the book explains the 10 actions for each of those birds. And then in detail, it gives you the activities you need to do to get strong in each of those 10 actions. So it's really the how-to guide for the skills you need to get what you want. Hmm. And just a quick side note, how did you decide the birds? Like why the budgie and not the willy wagtail perhaps? (laughs) (laughs) Such a great question. Well, you know, budgies are characterised by, uh, you know, the budgies are the favourite pet in the world. It's the most common bird pet. And the, the friendly budgie is all about goodwill. It's about that, the famous saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care from Theodore Roosevelt. The budgie cares a lot about their stakeholder and they're very likeable. They're someone that you want to be persuaded by. You want to spend time with them. They make you feel good. So the budgie is an obvious choice for that type. Um, the owl, you know, since since BC times, the owl is a symbol of subject matter expertise. You know, they're big eyes and they can swivel their head around 360 degrees and the idea in mythology is that the owl is wise 
and that's what an owl is in this psychometric assessment. It's the person who cares about message credibility. So they want a structured, logical argument. They're rational. They're reflective. They, you know, the the joke that I often tell is about the owl at the work Christmas party is <laughs> if you've seen an owl sitting in a tree, you often can't see it because it's camouflaged. And that's the owl at the work Christmas party. They kind of blend into the walls because they're not out there being the life of the party. The owl is someone that's thinking about the matter carefully in a considered way. Message credibility is their number one thing. The eagle, well, we all know about eagles. They own the sky. You know, when an eagle mates, they don't just, when they're courting, they don't just soar around on the thermals. They actually plummet and spin through the air in this fabulous sensational courtship ritual you know they just really own the sky and um, so to me the commanding eagle made great sense for for that particular style of persuasion these are the people who just you they walk in a room and they own space you you're not going to argue with them because you just trust them that they know the best way forward and then the peacock (laughs) you know when a when a, a lot of people think that the the uh, male peacock is the one that does the choosing in a relationship of peacocks, but actually it's the pea hen, the pea fowl that does the choosing. So a male peacock has to do absolutely everything it can think of to be as captivating and passionate and enthusiastic as possible <laughs> in order to convince that pea hen. So it's like it's dancing, it's shimmying, it's flashing its feathers all around, it's saying, look at me, look at me, I've got to persuade, I've got to persuade. And um, male peacocks are known to actually look for reflective surfaces when they're in their courtship phase, like mirrors and even hubcaps to make sure that they they check themselves out in the reflection and they want to try and make sure that they're as as hot as possible. (laughs) And that is just such the perfect bird for the peacock style in persuasion because that is the person that we we all know we've all got a friend like this who's you know up there on the stage or they're in the boardroom or they're in that that pitch meeting and they just captivate everybody with the fascination of it all and they're so passionate and confident and just impressive and charismatic in every way and we just we we want to believe them <laughs> uh-huh. so i think we did look at a whole heap of other ways of categorizing these four types but uh, when you when you think about the characteristics of those birds they do perfectly map with what those types each represent mm-hmm. mm. and can i ask you which way do you lean ah, can you guess <laughs> oh <laughs> I'm not sure because you you will have masked anything with with your skills. Haven't you? <laughs> isn't thank you so much because isn't that the point, sis? That your stakeholders shouldn't particularly know what you are. They should just think that you are whatever they needed you to be. So in a podcast, I would assume maybe you'll disagree with me here that uh, the the guest on your podcast needs to have some mastery over their subject matter. Their argument needs to be expressed in a logical and clear way. So that's the owl. They need to have the sense that they have the runs on the board. They've done this before. They've got a lot of experience at working with all sorts of different types of people and they are credible in their own right. Um, They need to be likeable. So they need to smile and they need to use people's names and they need to try and make their argument as interesting and likeable as possible. 
and then the peacock needs to be entertaining in the way that they tell the stories. So I'm trying, Sess. <laughs> I don't know how well I went, but I'm trying to do it for of course. I think you succeeded. Oh, <laughs> gorgeous. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been great having you on the show today and I can't wait to have a read of your book. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honour talking to you. Thank you so much, Sess. Thank you.